Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. Today's episode is focused almost entirely on the coronavirus. It features an in-depth conversation with Dr. Trevor Royce, who was on the podcast previously. If you would like to learn more about his background, you can visit our website or listen to that episode. I believe that was episode number 30. And he is a doctor at the University of North Carolina of Chapel Hill Medical Center. He's also a research clinician and so as a background in science. So he gets to share with us what he has learned uh, in his position at the hospital, what the hospital staff are talking about, the precautions they're taking, and basically all of his knowledge up to this point. This is recorded on Monday, March 16th. You know, his knowledge about the coronavirus, what is being seen in other countries, and some really helpful practical tips um, of how you individually and your family and those that you care about can respond to this. And one of the things he talked about, which um, I probably need to think more about, is what you would do if you found that you did have this virus or someone in your family had it, and the necessary precautions, uh, things like stockpiling a little bit of food and having a support network that you can reach out to in that eventuality. He also shares with us that the word corona itself means crown, which was an interesting tidbit that was new to me. So these are pretty heavy times. This is a heavy conversation and totally makes sense if you are feeling a lot from this situation. And in addition to what we talk about here in my conversation with Dr. Trevor Royce, you know, other things that we can do is to move a little slower than normal, to express kindness, even if it's just in a gesture or in your eyes, making eye contact with people, slowing down. I think these are really helpful things, practicing kindness. And it's just a tremendous opportunity to appreciate the fragility of life, of your life, of the life of everyone, and of our society, and all the hard work that has gone into creating this interconnected, globalized world so dependent on technology and it's just so apparent how easily it could all fall apart and that's scary there's a lot of fear on a lot of different levels right now myself included so if you want to let's just take a moment and feel our breaths feel our body if you have the time and space now take a moment and do nothing and just be with whatever is here right now Letting yourself feel whatever you're feeling, everything that you're feeling. And if you want to, as you feel that, maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's fear, probably a combination of all of these and more, it can be helpful to recognize there's a reason why you're feeling what you're feeling. And in this case, it's a good reason. So you can just be with it without trying to fix it or change it, without trying to do anything for a moment. And just let yourself feel. And know that you have the capacity to feel all of this and to take the next step when you need to. Know that you are not alone. Know that there is support here. 
in this world, and it's always okay to ask for help. And if you can pause for just a few moments and be with your experience without trying to change it, without trying to get anywhere else with it, just paying attention to your present experience in this moment, moment by moment. See if you can notice a moment of your experience where these feelings aren't there, where they change, where they're different. And start to pay more attention to the awareness which is aware of what you're experiencing rather than the content of your experience or your emotions. And that space of awareness is a source of strength, a place of clarity, a place of collectedness, a place of groundedness. And that is what's called the inner refuge in the Buddhist traditions, the space of the mind in which all occurs and which is always available to us. So thank you for listening, and without further ado, I bring you Dr. Trevor Royce. Hello, I'm here today with Dr. Trevor Royce. Thank you so much for joining us on short notice. It's a pleasure to be here. This is uh, an emergency podcast. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Uh, we are in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic. Is that what you would call it, an epidemic? Uh, I would call it a pandemic. And in fact, the World Health Organization would agree with me. That's yeah. its official uh, designation now. And what, does that, what does that mean? What is the distinction there? Uh, they have certain um, definitions for the extent of an infectious outbreak like this. Hmm. Uh, and I, I'm not so familiar with the entire scale, but, you know, epidemic, pandemic. I know pandemic, I believe, is required to be on all continents, except maybe Antarctica gets a pass. But clearly, uh, when it reaches basically global status, it earns a pandemic designation. But uh, it is an official designation that is not thrown around lightly by the WHO. Right. So that shows the severity of it, the spread of it, the extent. Yes, the extent. And so I'm, you're right now in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, your background? and? Sure. My name is Trevor Royce. I'm a physician here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I, my specialty is oncology meaning cancer patients, and specifically, I use radiation to treat cancer patients. However, my research interests uh, involve population health and the cost of care, the effectiveness of care. I have a master's in public health from the uh, Harvard School of Public Health, and hmm. so I've been watching this uh, disease unfold with great interest. And um, before we were talking, you said you would describe yourself as a research clinician. Is that the phrase you used? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, a clinical researcher, meaning um, you know I'm an academic physician. I'm a doctor that works in the academic healthcare environment, and we do research to advance medical science. So uh, part of my job is seeing patients and taking good care of patients. Hmm. Uh, part of my job is also doing research and trying to improve uh, care in the United States. Hmm. Right. 
And so as you're working there in the hospital, what kinds of information are you guys getting and wanting to share with the public? Specifically about this virus? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, specifically about the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, well, uh, many healthcare professionals have been worried about this virus for a while and have been watching it sort of uh, the story unfold. Um, well, so when you say a while, like over, like people knew about it years ago or in the last few weeks or months? Uh, uh, well, it was, you know, first documented basically in Wuhan, China in uh, December and didn't really <laughs> capture attentions until January and February. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, there's a lot of literature, you know, cautioning that this sort of event could happen for right. some time now, especially when you think about you know, what we've gone through with Ebola and the SARS virus and some of these other uh, Corona type viruses, um, uh, you know, people, uh, epidemiologists have been worried about this sort of event for a long time, uh, particularly in the era of, you know, globalization and how freely goods and people move between nations and globally. And uh, uh, here we are. I mean, um, it hasn't really, people haven't really it really has captured the imagination, I'd say, over the last week, basically starting last Tuesday, and things have escalated dramatically yeah. in the United States. Absolutely. I mean, it almost feel, it feels a but, bit like uh, a panic China, at the moment. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think people are, are legitimately scared. I mean, I, I walk around and I see fear on people's faces. Yeah, me too. Yeah, people are really scared. Um, so I want to get into that more, um, but just this background, like that scientist... Have been have known about coronaviruses. Like there's more than one of them. Um, they've been worried about an event like this happening. They've been studying them. Is this this is like a new form of an already known about virus, or is this virus been around and just now is getting to people from an animal? Um, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that the virus is in this is newly described <laughs> virus. Uh, in de- as of December, it's not entirely clear where exactly it came from, but most of what I've seen suggests that it come from a, uh, a market in Wuhan, China, where right. they, you know, sell exotic animals, meats, right. and things like that. That's, and, that's a part of the story that really caught my attention and the environmental destruction that we're carrying out and how that leads to illnesses. And there was a great article in the New York Times yesterday about how many of our modern diseases come from the way we interact with the environment, including AIDS and people going in and clearing rainforest. And then these markets in China where endangered animals are sold for like traditional Chinese medicine or for being eaten. And that this one most likely came from one of those markets where there's illegal selling of endangered animals happening. Yes. Yes, definitely. And, uh, uh, SARS, you know, similarly came, I think it was either bats or these cats called civets that Mm. are uh, eaten in China. Um, I mean, there's many, there's a whole, there's obviously a long history of, diseases that can jump from animals to humans. And this mm. virus is another example of that. The coronavirus itself is a, a subtype of viruses. I mean, there are different types of viruses and the coronavirus is a specific type of virus. Uh, the technical term for this virus is something like SARS-2 or something like that. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Any, where does this word corona virus come from? Is that anything? It's, uh, I believe, you know, Corona is, a, I guess, Latin, or <coughs> I assume it's a Latin term, but it means crown. And you see that, that uh, Corona pop up in a variety of 
uh, you know, medical settings. But I think it's because the the molecular structure of the virus looks a little crown-like. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. The uh, beer called Corona has become very unpopular. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, they say there's they say there's no such thing as bad press. So I suspect that Corona will actually benefit in the long term. Oh, yeah. It may take a few <laughs> months or years, but yeah. It will help with their brand recognition at the least. Jeez. Um, so yeah, this is all fascinating. I mean, all these little tidbits. Uh, I didn't know that the word Corona referred to crown. Um, and I guess I cut you a little bit short in talking about your background because we have limited time, but Clearly, I mean, you're involved with research and you're a part of this big research hospital. I guess I'm interested in the information and protocols being put in place at the hospital because I feel like that's worth sharing with people and shows kind of the seriousness of it. Yeah. I mean, we escalated our practices fairly quickly over the last week. Uh, I was scheduled to go to a conference uh, starting on (coughs) Wednesday of last week, but by Tuesday of last week, which would have been on the March 10th, um, our hospital adopted a policy uh, prohibiting essentially all domestic and international travel and not attending meetings of greater than 50 people. Um, Hmm. And those constraints have been sort of ratcheted up as the week has gone on. So those constraints are for everyone that works in the hospital. Yeah. And would that include people like, I don't know, like a janitor, like people like that as well? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I mean that if could, the janitor had a big meeting with the rest of their staff and uh, their group, then it would be limited at that time to less than 50. And now it's much less than that. Less I mean, than now, that. I believe that uh, the administration and President Trump had a press conference this afternoon where they've re- released an updated list of uh, recommendations. And one of that recommendations is to not attend any meeting with more than 10 people. Right. Yeah, I just saw that. No weddings, no funerals, you know, none of that. So they're recommending that just for everyone. Yeah. Um, but you guys and women and everyone else working at the hospital, obviously it's um, you're kind of at higher risk, I would think, of catching it. And then also there's a greater cost to society because there's a limited number of health workers. So if a lot of yeah. nurses become sick, if a lot of doctors become sick, then that puts even more strain on our healthcare system. Yes, there's a couple of interesting things to think about that. I mean, uh, first of all, there were two... <clears throat> There was a news story out of Italy today, I mean, out of the U.S. today, where two emergency medicine physicians are in critical care because of this virus. Mm. Um, so clearly, healthcare workers are at very high risk. And so I guess this is as good a moment to any is to implore all of your listeners to be very judicious with their use of personal protective equipment, like mm. masks and gloves, because uh, we are going to run out of those as this virus uh uh, grows and mm. its impact increases. And, um, uh, you know, if those on the front lines can't use masks to treat patients, we're going to be in a really tight spot and those healthcare workers are at risk. And there is some data to suggest that the viral load exposure, meaning the amount of viral, you know, particles that you're exposed to could uh, correlate with worse outcomes. And so anything we can do to minimize the exposure to healthcare providers and anyone is a way to go. Oh. Okay. Well, that's new information for me. So what you're saying now is it's, it's not just a matter of are you exposed or not exposed. The number of particles you are exposed to would make a difference. Yes. That's interesting. So like passing someone in the street when you're both outside, it's going to be much less likely to transmit. The, or if it does, it would be a smaller amount than if you're in a crowded room. Like yes. That kind of thing. 
another way to look at that would be if you are you know, passing someone on the street and they cough in your general direction, you maybe inhale one of their respiratory droplets and you infect it that way, uh, perhaps you would have a less severe disease course than, say, a healthcare worker who is taking care of a patient with acute respiratory failure and has to put a breathing tube down and mm. they're spewing sputum everywhere. You know, oh, man. You know, you're... you're Elbows deep. <laughs> Jeez, I, I'm not a virologist, so I don't, I can't speak to how strong that correlation is. But uh, I have heard that that um, is part of the pathogenesis. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And so, if you are a healthcare worker in that situation, you know, I'm imagining you're taking extra precautions now to reduce the exposure. Yes. Like, what do those look like? Uh, well, we have you know lots of training about how to protect ourselves from certain uh, different infectious settings and, you know, infectious pathogens are transmitted in different ways. Some are airborne, some are, you know, contact, uh, <coughs> some are, uh, you know, more respiratory. And so this generally requires a specific type of mask and a lot of providers who are doing things like innovating or wearing things like face shields and yeah. uh, gowns that protect them, that sort of thing. Gloves, obviously, hand sanitizer. And uh, this is another question that's been out in the media a lot, but like, is wearing, um, you know, the typical mask that people put over their face actually going to help you from getting it? Uh, yes and no. It, it is effective uh, more in that it prevents you from touching your face a lot, which you uh, know everybody does all the time. Um, and if you have a barrier there, it will help protect you from that. Uh, so that's probably the main protective mechanism. But oh, interesting. actually breathing in, as say, uh, airborne viral particle, those masks, the, the most masks that we see aren't, aren't that good at that, unless it's an N95 mask, which is a specific mm. type of mask. And is the mask that you, your nurses and doctors have in the hospital, that, like, that level uh, of mask? We have different types. Uh, we use both those sort of more routine surgical masks and the more kind of sophisticated N95 masks. And uh, if you're taking care of a coronavirus patient, you would be using an N95 mask. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, another thing you shared with me is that the fatality rate in Italy was much higher than people originally thought. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? And like, what does that uh, yes. mean for us here in America? Well, that's part of the panic and concern. There's no reason to panic, but uh, the concern is that the American path so, you know, different countries are approaching this pandemic with different strategies. And a lot of it is driven by their cultural, uh, their healthcare structure, and, you know, other variables like that. Their population, the homogeneity of the population, their social structures. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some have been very strict about how they approach this virus, and some less so. Um, the concern is that here in the U.S. we may go down a similar path that Italy has, where they essentially had widespread uh, dissemination of the virus over a short period of time, leading to a very high influx of sick patients all at once, which really essentially um, you know, stressed their medical system's capacities. Mm. So Italy so, is having a rough road with it. Italy is having uh, arguably the worst out of any country so far. In fact, the WHO has designated Italy as the official epicenter now of the outbreak. Really? What about, I thought Iran was having it really bad too. Iran has also had it very bad. Um, <clears throat> part of the problem with Italy too is that there, there's clear evidence that this uh, virus is most harmful in older patients 
And Italy also has an aging population. And so that also skews their mortality rate. But uh, it's clear that the mortality rate in Italy is way above what anyone would have uh, thought at first. Yeah, and that gives us cause for concern. Um, yes, and that's why um, we're taking this very seriously. And I mean, the other thing I'm hearing and a lot of people are talking about, but it feels worth uh, discussing with you is that people are concerned about the, our healthcare system being overwhelmed. I mean, is that part of what is happening in Italy and is a real danger here? Uh, yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the worry is that uh, the number of sick people will overwhelm our medical system's capacity because everyone's going to get sick at once. Mm. You know, if, if it was just, you know, a handful of people getting sick here and there over time, we could handle this and keep the mortality rate much lower. But as soon as our hospital beds fill and the ventilators uh, are full, all bets are off. And when you say all bets are off, you're talking about a situation that hopefully won't happen, but could happen where people are getting sick from this coronavirus. They try to go to the hospital. They don't have the machine, the ventilators. They don't have the staff. They don't have the beds. And so someone who would otherwise survive and be fine is at a greater risk of dying or having longer term damage. Yes. Another way to look at that is that you have a preventable, a preventable death in front of you, mm. but you cannot give them the care that they need. So they die. And that, to me, explains why we're seeing all these restrictions on travel, people being asked not to go out in public, restaurants closing down, bars closing down. This is the reasoning. This is like the main logical reasoning, right? Yes. Because um, basically the thought is that containment is no longer possible. And so the strategy is mitigation. And mm. the key difference there is containment, meaning keep the virus in a specific geographical area. Maybe just keep it in Seattle, lock all of Seattle down. But we're clearly beyond that at this point. And so now we just need to mitigate the damage and try to draw it out as long as possible so that we can mobilize the resources needed. Hmm. I mean, is this something you expect to eventually, one way or another, everyone will get exposed to? Or is there some hope that it will be contained? I think you should operate under the assumption that you will get exposed to this. Wow. Um, now, and what what does many, that mean, operating under that assumption? Meaning you need to plan your life around what you would do should you get the virus. And so uh, let's go into that because what, what should you do if you get the virus? <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, most of the people that get this won't either have symptoms or they'll have mild symptoms enough that they won't have to go to the hospital. Mm. So clearly, if you get the virus, you should you know, not go out and spread the virus amongst the rest of your countrymen. Right. Um, so self-quarantining. You should self-quarantine. You should have supplies at home that can get you through that self-quarantine period. You should have a support network identified. Uh, it can help you in case you actually mm. do get sick. Um, well, that's a great that's a great suggestion. Have a support network of people that you could reach out to that can maybe drop food off for you. I mean, you need to ask yourself, what do you do if I, number one, get infected and test positive and I'm quarantined? Number two, what do I do if I get infected, I test positive, and I get really sick? Hmm. Number three, you know, what do I do if I die from this? Like, uh, you should <laughs> think about these things. Oh, well. So you're taking this very seriously. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel mean, at was, once more informed and more concerned. Like, you know, when I like talking with it, you about this. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, if we overreact, then that's great news. If we underreact, then we'll look like Italy, and that would be tragic because their mortality rate is seven to eight percent, and that's avoidable. 
So that seven to eight percent is terrible, and it's also avoidable. It's part of the tragedy of what you're what's happening. Yeah. So I mean, in a best case scenario, what do you have any numbers for the mortality rate if someone does get the care they need? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's some you know pretty informative tables on the mortality rate by age, and uh, if you, I mean, clearly if you're over seventy, you're at higher risk, and you should do everything you can to avoid getting this until you know things like vaccines are available. Um, if you are under seventy, your chance of mortality is much less. And uh, uh, let me just kind of pull up a, a chart here for sure. Our, and I mean, when you say over 70, I mean, it's basically there's a population at higher risk, anyone with compromised immune, people who are smoking cigarettes, like do you, yes. um, any, anyone else in that obese, obesity, high yeah, blood pressure with comorbidities? Yeah. Other medical issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, just, but at any rate, uh, you yeah. know, the, the, the mortality rate is much lower um, outside those age groups and with supportive care. Okay. Uh, closer to maybe one to five percent, something like that. Hmm. But even uh, even one percent is like a pretty big. It's a big deal, right? On a oh yeah, it's a big deal. It's certainly on a population level. I mean, the United States has let's see. I think we have three hundred million people. Yeah, three hundred thirty million people. So one percent of that, it's a lot of people. Great. Um, three million people. Three million people potentially. Yeah, that's yeah, a wild. best case scenario. One percent. I mean, obviously, not everyone's going to get it. Not everyone's going to be symptomatic. But uh, you know, in in Germany, they're they're estimating an infectious rate uh, of seventy uh, percent of their entire population wow. getting this virus at some point. So, who knows? I mean, it, you know, clearly this thing is here to stay, and this is going to be part of our life. Uh, it'll be just another virus that people catch, like the flu or like HIV or or whatever. You know, it'll be mm. part of our our infectious culture, but uh, we just got to get through this sort of initial assault and then hopefully we can go back to life. I see. Well, that's a good way to put it. Like puts it in a bigger perspective. I mean, you you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, that's basically what you're saying. No. And it sounds like something that's incredibly uh, contagious and has this incubation period. So it's, I think that's part of what the panic, the scare, the fear is about. It's, It's very contagious you know, at least as contagious as the flu, maybe a little more so. Uh, the way it's spread is a little unclear, but clearly can be spread, you know, through respiratory droplets. And there seems to be a long latency period where you have it, but you don't have any symptoms yet. Um, and it does appear that even asymptomatic people can uh, still infect others. So um, right. that's, it, you know, easy to spread. Any idea of the length of this latency period? I've heard four days. Yeah, that's what I've seen as well. That's what you've seen. Yeah. But obviously, we're still learning a lot more about it, and uh, and that includes you know the testing component and the vaccine component, as well as the treatment component. And then I guess another question for you is, if you did get this virus and recover and were okay, you would then have antibodies in your system, you would then be immune? Is that kind of how it works? Uh, that's true, although it's a little more complicated than that because the virus does, as many viruses do, mutate over time. And so just like you can get the influenza one year and get it <laughs> next year, you may also be able to get this one year and get it again the next year. Oh, I see what you're saying. It remains to be seen how seasonal it is and how much it mutates, but uh, there's, there are reports of people getting it twice. And in fact, there seem to be two divergent strands of the virus that have mutated um, 
Oh, wow. Uh, sort of in front of our eyes. And uh, so, yeah. Well, that's, I didn't know that last part. So it's already, we're already seeing a change and evolve. Yes, definitely. I guess a question for me, like if you take a longer term perspective, like you just were talking about in the future, um, we have flu season, this coronavirus would be like another thing that kind of pops up here and there periodically. Is this just, we're, we just have more sickness in the world in general going forward where we'll kind of even out. Maybe, or we have effective vaccines that help prevent it, you know. So until a vaccine comes, we're kind of at the mercy yeah. of it. I mean, there's also this concept of herd immunity, whereby if enough people around you have become or developed immunity to the pathogen, then those that are not immune to the pathogen will uh, reap the benefits mm. of everyone around them being immune because they can't, they can't uh, get it passed on to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's a good concept. You know, let's put it this way: to, you know, if you have ten people in a room, and nine of those, or and eight of those people, uh, are immune to the virus because they've had it or they've been vaccinated to it, then the two people that aren't have a very low risk of getting it because the other people <laughs> in the room, you know, can't get it. Right. They effectively have to get it from someone else who was susceptible. Yes, and in fact, this is sort of the approach that, at least my understanding. Again, I'm not an expert. I don't have any insight to you know. Higher level government conversations, but it appears to be the strategy of uh, the United Kingdom and England is to take this herd immunity approach. Mm. And they seem to be recommending that everyone the age of 70 or older really bunker down for this, while everyone else, you know, is sort of going about their business. And eventually, maybe there will be enough of the population that has been exposed to the virus and developed immunity that it's a lot safer for those higher risk populations because there's now lower risk to catching it. That is fascinating. And I've had this conversation and like related thoughts with people now often where it's like, why not just let it run its course? I think the number one reason that we talked about is that it would overrun our hospitals. Yeah. Um, But if it did run its course, this herd immunity would eventually come online and help protect people. And, you know, hopefully that's where we'll get eventually. So, I mean, the flu, you know, the flu is out there, but it's not like everyone catches the flu all at the same time. Right. Uh, and uh, we'll probably reach some sort of steady state like that at some point. So, I mean, the novelty, the newness of it is part of the problem. Yes, definitely. It's probably the primary problem. So when you hear about United Kingdom approach, um, whether right, or not other, that, One, one yeah. other just quick follow-up thing while I think of it. You know, another interesting facet about this is that the virus itself actually isn't too deadly, meaning that... Um, Ebola is very lethal. And in fact, maybe so lethal that these these infectious pockets sort of just die out because people who don't live long enough or are asymptomatic enough to go around and spread the virus to people. Oh, well. Uh, whereas this one um, is, you know, latent and indolent for a long period of time or not deadly enough that people can go around and still spread it without sort of burning out the infection. Right. No, that's fascinating too, because the fact that not everyone dies from it, that there's this latency period that for some people, it's not that serious. Well, for other people, it's very serious, kind of contributes to how fast it's spreading. I was just going to ask, like when you are talking about the United Kingdom approach with the herd immunity, is that something that you are in favor of or that you think is a good idea? Uh, I don't know that I can pass it <laughs> one way or the other. It seems like a high stakes game, but uh, maybe they don't have any other choices. Maybe the cat's already mm-hmm. out of the bag. And so they're trying to make the best out of it. Um, right. which seems a reasonable approach. And here in America, we're still trying to contain it as much as possible. Yeah, mitigate it. Mitigate it. Um, yeah. Well, do you have any other thoughts just in general to share with people 
Um, I think your tips on what to do and like some of the preparations and things to think about were really valuable. I guess yeah. the, the, to be, um, I don't know, to be re- more realistic about that, how are you going to know you have it? Well, the main symptom of driving a, the an indication for a test would be a fever and, and respiratory symptoms. Right. You know, um, if you had a history of exposure to someone that's tested positive, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just, it's scary to think about that you could have it and not realize it. Yep. Maybe that's good though. <laughs> Better but, to have it not realize it than have it and realize it for the individual, not for society, but for the individual. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and where are we at in terms of like, are there certain test kits? Like if someone does need to be tested because they do have flu-like symptoms, is that pretty available right now? Uh, well, this is probably the, one of the major frustrations amongst clinicians, at least that I've spoken with, is this uh, delayed entry of rapid testing into you know, the community. <clears throat> um, we've known about this virus since December, and widespread testing has not been available, and the testing that is available has taken many days to come back. That's changing, and hopefully we'll see that continue to change. Uh, I can speak to our example here in North Carolina, where the only testing available is to send the test kit to the state lab where they run the test, which is much uh, less efficient than doing the test, say, in-house at our, at our hospital. Right. Um, and it would take two or three or four days for that test to come back. And so, you know, as I've mentioned, many people that – most people that have this are – or have minimal or, or no symptoms. And so while you're waiting that test to come back, back, that person could be walking around the community, feeling fine doing whatever it is they're doing, spreading the virus around. Um, however, just today, we have now officially enabled in-house testing with more rapid turnaround here at our hospital. So That's hopefully uh, other places are also experiencing this in, in, in improvement in testing capability. Yeah, I the, hope so. I guess yeah, other wrinkle is that the numbers cannot be believed because we can't test anybody. So... You know, they say there are 4,000 people with, te- you know, with it in the U.S., but the reality is it's probably much, much higher. And is, is this a specific test designed for this specific virus? Yes. Okay. And it's a fairly sophisticated test, which is part of why it's taken a little time to get it out there. Right. Well, in talking to you, it makes sense to me why people are being urged to practice this social distancing to stay in, to not gather in large groups, because... We have no idea who and how many people have it right now. That's right. It's just a complete unknown. Yes. <laughs> wild, wild times. This is like a historical moment, like what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a historic moment. No question. It already is. This will change. This will change our culture for forever. It's, yeah. I mean, I mean that, that, that part to me is fascinating. I wonder if you, if we want to give people a silver lining here, like positive changes we can make as a society going forward. And one of the ones that I think of is, you know, our healthcare system in general, but our ability to respond to something like this, because as bad as this is, it's very obvious to me that it could be a hundred times worse. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, uh, that's absolutely right. I think that the silver lining is number one, you know, the fatality rate with good health care is not that high. Many people will get this, but will be asymptomatic. You know, chances are most people will get this and do fine. Um, the The problem is that subset that will will not do well. Um, clearly, it's a wake up call for our preparedness for something like this. We, we clearly were caught on our hands 
and we're wildly underprepared for this um, and we've been chasing our tails a little bit, but I think we're making some progress. Um, I think that uh, the economic story of this is interesting. You know, clearly the economy is taking a huge hit with this as life as we know it gets shut down. But uh, hopefully the fundamentals of our economy are strong and will rebound quickly. This isn't like the 2018 Great Recession where our economy had some real, you know, foundational and fundamental issues that took us a long time to get out of it. Well, that's Um, a 2008 recession. That's that's an interesting perspective that it's not... I hope that's true. I mean, I think people fear that this could reveal fundamental problems that have been hidden up for a long time. Yeah. Yep. So... Uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. And this is part of the world that we live in, an uh, era of globalization, and uh, we can do better, and hopefully we'll be more prepared next time. Yeah, uh, I hope so. <laughs> but what? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to not be too skeptical. <laughs> trying not to be skeptical. Why don't we just quickly, I know your time is limited, like list some of the things that, had we had these things in place, we would be much better off right now. Well, we needed testing. was clear, number one. Uh, mm. You knew there should have been more widespread availability of testing from the outset so that when cases started happening, we had a better sense of, uh, you know, who and where they were. Hmm. And kind of followed the, if you look at the, <clears throat> the case rate of countries like um, <coughs> Singapore um, or South Korea, where they had very aggressive uh, mitigation and containment measures, um, you know, that would be sort of the ideal path. Oh, interesting. So Singapore and South Korea could be models that we could look to, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were ready for this. Singapore locked everything down, tested everybody. And if you look at the curve of their number of cases, it's remarkable in contrast to all the Western nations so far. Oh, that's fascinating. <sighs> all right. Well, well, thanks so much for talking to me. That was very informative. And um, I imagine people listening or we'll take it more seriously, but also have more useful information to engage with and think about. Yes. And, uh, you know, we should say that, you know, this is obviously rapidly developing and we're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot more about this as we go on. Uh, some of the things we talked about may end up not being true. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about there as well. Um, mm. And these questions were answered to the best of my knowledge, but we'll, we're going to learn a lot more as this goes on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, speaking of misinformation, is there anything there that you want to speak to? Uh, you know, I would just encourage people to go through the official channels like the CDC or the NIH uh, that have a lot of good supportive materials out there that are more, you know, fact-based. Like the actual scientists studying this. And- yes. Yeah. I would listen yeah. to the folks at the NIH. Anthony Fauci's, um, you know, helped usher our country through the HIV AIDS epidemic. And he's mm-hmm. doing the same with this. And uh, he's a voice of reason in uh, a politically charged atmosphere in D.C. and uh, can be yeah. helped. Uh, source of information. That's that's helpful. Can you say his name one more time just for people? To... Yeah, Anthony Fauci. He runs the Infectious Disease Group at the NIH in uh, Washington, D.C. Yep. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yep. I'll talk soon. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you have found this podcast valuable, there are many ways in which you can support it. You can share it with friends and on your social media. You can leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. And you can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. For show notes and more information unique to each episode, visit estateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. And please don't hesitate to send me a message or email and let me know what you think and contribute to our conversation. Thank you so much for your support. 
It is listeners like you that make all this so very much worthwhile. 